Alexander the Great was one of the most successful military leaders in human history. His 13-year reign took place approximately 300 years before the coming of Christ. He ruled the Greek Empire, and under his leadership, it expanded from Greece all the way to Northern Ireland. We are told not only that Alexander the Great was an epic military leader, but apparently he was also generous. The story is told that one day he passed by a would-be beggar. This beggar had no right to ask for anything. He was so poor and so wretched. And in his generosity, Alexander just gave him two gold coins. Once they had passed, another member of the royal entourage came up to Alexander and said, uh, Emperor, why did you give him two gold coins? Copper coins would have sufficed. Copper coins would have been adequate to meet all that man's needs. And Alexander the Great simply replied, Copper coins will suit that man's needs, but only gold coins will suit this man's giving. This morning I ask you, how much generosity will suit your giving? We're in the midst of a seven-part sermon series entitled Making Disciples, whereby we're examining seven characteristics of a God-built disciple. All of them are on display for us to see in the book of Psalms. And today, the characteristic of a God-built disciple is that a disciple is one who is generous with his resources. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Psalm 112. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Please hear the word of God from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends friendly, freely, who does not uh, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Psalm 112 is a fitting follow-up to Psalm 111. If you and I looked at both of those psalms side by side, we would observe that both Psalm 111 and 112 are comprised of 10 verses. If we looked at the text in its ancient Hebrew language, we would discover that both of the psalms have 22 lines. And these 22 lines form an acrostic through the 22-lettered Hebrew alphabet with the first word of every first line beginning with the succeeding letter of the alphabet. 
Historians have said, theologians have agreed that the reason this was done was a mechanism for memorization. It made it easier for people to memorize Psalm 111, Psalm 112, because they were built as a 22-line, 10-verse acrostic with the uh, alphabet. If you look closer at these two psalms, you'll discover that they share some similar phrases. In verse 3, we read in both 111 and 112 something about... The righteousness endures forever. In verse 4 of both of the Psalms, we read of grace and compassion. In Psalm 111, it describes the characteristic of God. In Psalm 112, it describes the characteristic of the disciple of God. Because God and his disciple ought to be gracious and compassionate. You get to the end of Psalm 111, there in verse 10. It, it voices a very familiar phrase in all of wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It would appear to me that what follows in Psalm 112 is a description or a portrait of the disciple of the Lord who fears the Lord and it is the beginning of wisdom. So you walk down through our passage of Psalm 112 and you find a description of what it is to be a disciple of the Lord. What it is to be a wise man or a wise woman, a wise boy, a wise girl, someone who lives life according to the scriptures. In our passage, it would appear that the psalmist is talking about the disciple in all of his relationships. First, his relationship with God. Second, his relationship with his family. Third, his relationship with his possessions. And fourth and finally, his relationship with the world. You come to Psalm 112 verse 1, and it is clearly a description of the disciple and his relationship with God. Now the very first word in Hebrew, the very first line is a one-word line. I realize that in your English text, it just simply says, praise the Lord. But in the ancient Hebrew language, that, that phrase is one word. It's hallelujah. In fact, if you know the word hallelujah, you know Hebrew. You know a Hebrew word. Hallelujah is a compound Hebrew word. Hallel means praise. Yah is an abbreviation of Yahweh. So hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. If there's one word that ought to describe your life and mine, if there's one word that ought to describe the disciple who's in right relationship with God, it's the word hallelujah. We ought to have praise on our lips and in our lives. We ought to have praise of God in our walk and in our talk. We ought to praise him with our attitudes and our actions. One word that ought to describe us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is the word hallelujah. God has been so good to me. God has done so much for me that the only appropriate way for me to respond or you to respond is simply to declare hallelujah by the way we live and by the way we walk and by the way we talk. We ought to be hallelujah people. We ought to be individuals that proclaim the good news and we just simply praise the Lord. You do realize that eventually you become like that which you worship. If you worship self, you will become selfish. If you worship your child, you will become childish. If you worship material things, you will become materialistic. If you worship tolerance, you will become tolerant. If you worship the world, you will become worldly. Ah, but if you worship God, you will become godly. We become like that which we worship. We worship the Lord and we look more like the Lord. The relationship between God and man is, is, is very similar to the relationship between the sun and the moon. You think about the sun. The sun is the origin of light. Light erupts from the sun. And the moon at night 
it also shines. But it doesn't shine because of itself. It's only a reflection of the light of the sun. In a very similar way, many theologians have said that God is the origin of light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we shine before a watching dark world. And when we shine, it's not because of us. It's because of the light of the Lord that reflects off of us. The only analogy that Jesus uses of himself and his disciples is this analogy of light. Jesus said of himself, I am the great shepherd. He never said of you, you are the great shepherd. Jesus said of himself, I am the gate. He never said, you are the gate. Jesus said of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he never said, you are the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus did say, I am the light of the world. And he also said, you are the light of the world. If you are in right relationship with God, then you have hallelujah all over your life because you reflect the goodness and the light of the Lord. Now, how do you do that? According to verse 1, you fear the Lord. And your delight is his commands. You fear the Lord. That does not mean that you are afraid of God. It does mean that you have a holy reverence of God. You fear him with holy, reverent worship, and you delight in his commands. Your passion, your, your obsession is obedience to God and to his word. You long to eat this scroll. You long to study his word. You want to be a person of the Bible, person of the book, and you delight in obeying his commands. The psalmist says, that if we are going to live the good life, if we're going to live the wise life, then we've got to be in right relationship with God. But secondly, he comes to verse 2, and it is a description of the disciple and his relationship with his family. He simply writes, his children will be mighty in the land. Now the word mighty does not mean physically fit. It doesn't mean physically strong. But this word mighty means spiritually solid. This man who's in right relationship with God is also in right relationship with his family. And by default, he raises children that have a godly reputation, a godly testimony. He raises mighty children of that generation. And how are those mighty children described? They are upright. They are blessed in that generation. Now, friends, I got to be honest with you. Every generation needs some mighty children. Every generation, every succeeding generation, we've got to raise up mighty children of God. Children who are upright in their decision-making. Children that are blessed in their generation. We've got, to, we've got to raise families that honor the Lord. You know, one of the big top ten, the Ten Commandments, says, honor your father and mother, for then it will go well with you. I don't know any parent who hasn't quoted that to their children over and over and over again. Honor your father and mother, because then it will go well for you, right? I mean, we, we communicate this because we want our children to honor us. What does that mean? The word honor really means to be heaped over, bent over with glory. To be weighted heavily with honor and respect. Now how does a child honor mom and dad? Well, when they're young, they honor them by simply doing what the parent tells them to do. 
But the older you become, the way you honor your parents is by your life choices, the decisions that you make. When I reflect the good splendor of God in my decision making, I'm really also heaping some honor upon my upbringing with my mom and my dad. I am honoring them by how I live my life, honoring them by the choices that I make. Here the psalmist says, the one who is wise, he has a right relationship with God, it's described by hallelujah. He has a good relationship and a right relationship with his family, for he raises mighty children. Now I know that mama's not mentioned in the verse. But just because mama's not mentioned in the verse, don't think for one second that mama's not there. Behind every mighty child of God, behind every child that is upright and blessed in their generation, you have a faithful dad and a faithful mom. It is the best recipe for raising up mighty children of the Lord. It is God's recipe it is his building block for society when he says that a family ought to be made of a godly guy and a godly gal who raised some godly kids because every child needs the faithful instruction of the father and every child needs the loving nurture of the mother i'm not describing that in the sense that the father can't be loving or that the mother can't be instructive Obviously they can, but the faithful instruction and the godly nurturing, it comes best through husband and wife, mom and dad, male and female. The greatest gift that parents can give their children is the calm, secure promise that daddy loves mama and mama loves daddy. The best thing we can give our children is not some experience, it's not some toy, it's not some thing of this world. The best thing you can give your children is the calm assurance that daddy ain't never going to run out on mama and mama is never going to abandon daddy. When a child has that calm, innate assurance that mom and dad are going to stick and stay together, you have given your child the greatest gift possible. When you look at the family, the family has a Trinitarian stamp upon it. You know the Trinity. God is one God, three persons. In that Trinitarian stamp, there is Father, Son, and Spirit. In a similar way, not the same way, but in a similar way, the family has a Trinitarian stamp in its DNA. It is one thing made up of three persons. You have the husband and the wife and the child. I realize that not all families have children. I understand and I get that. But you have to agree with me that the way God designed the family, he stamped a Trinitarian image into its DNA. There is husband and wife and child or children. This is the building block for every society. Not just the American society, but every society that's ever been in human history. It does not take a Harvard-educated sociologist to help us conclude that when the biblical family arose, so does society. Now, our culture doesn't call it the biblical family. They'll call it the traditional family or the nuclear family. But when the nuclear traditional family 
a.k.a. the biblical family of a husband and a wife who is uh, bound together in holy matrimony, raising godly kids. When that system begins to erode, so does society. So does the culture. You and I can just simply look around and we can see that our culture is quickly eroding. And how did it get there? An attack against the biblical family. And I know that some of you may sit there and think to yourself, now, Pastor, to be honest with you, uh, I think it's really too far gone. The toothpaste is already out of the tube. I don't know what we can do. Our society is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, everything is topsy-turvy. Everything's being redefined, reconstructed, and reconstrued. I mean, everything is just really messed up. I don't know what we can do, Pastor. And I realize that we live in some crazy times. We live in a world where a woman can think she's a man and declare that men can get pregnant. We live in some crazy times. We live in a world where a man can think he's a woman and then demand that feminine hygiene products be available in every bathroom. We live in a world where children, they don't have a mom and a dad. They've got two moms. They've got two dads. We live in a world where children can somehow have a bad day and Johnny just thinks he really feels like Sally and Sally just feel like, really feels like she's, she's more like Jimmy and she have somebody in their classroom, some teacher at their school who says, you know what, we can fix that because Sally, you don't have to be Sally. You can be Jimmy if you want to and Jimmy, you don't have to be Jimmy. You can be Sally if you want to and guess what? We're not going to have to tell your parents. We don't have to tell mom or dad. We don't have to tell dad and dad. We don't have to tell mom and mom. We don't have to tell anybody. You can do what you want to do. You're eight years old. You can make decisions that will affect the rest of your life, and you can make them today. What do you want to do? Oh, my friends, we live in some strange times. We live in strange moments where it's an attack against the biblical family, and where the biblical family erodes, so does society. So does the culture. If there are not godly guys standing up, society erodes. If they're not nurturing wives standing up, society erodes. If there are not mighty children who are upright and blessed in their generation, if they don't stand up, society erodes. Society, society is, is eroding at a rapid pace. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, what can we do about it? There's nothing we can do. The toothpaste is already out of the tube. There's no way we can fix this. And for those of you who are thinking that, I've got a word for you this morning. And the word that I have for you is an ancient word. The word that I have for you is, we can call it a Greek word. And the Greek ancient word that I have for you is hogwash. Hogwash. We can do something about this. We must do something about this. You know what we have to do? As the people of God, we've got to stand up and stand with the God of the people. Now, God's not wringing his hands over this thing. God knows what's right. God knows what's true. But as the people of God, we've got to stand up with God and for God. We've got to stop acquiescing. We've got to stop being silent. We've got to stop being muted. We've got to win the war of holiness in our homes. If we don't win the war of holiness, in our homes, then we have no shot of winning the war of holiness in the streets. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Let me tell you exactly what I mean by that. As Christians, we got to stop getting divorced. As Christians, we've got to stop cheating on our wives. As Christians, we've got to stop cheating on our husbands. As Christians, we've got to stop abandoning our responsibility. As Christians, we've got to stop looking at things that are destructive in our homes and in our hearts. As Christians, 
we've got to be men and women of holiness. If I ask your children, who is the godliest guy you know? And men, if that response is not my dad, men, you're failing. And if I ask your children, who is the godliest woman that you know? And if your child does not say, my mom, then ladies, you're failing. We have got to stop failing when it comes to this war of holiness. If we don't win the war of holiness in the home, where we literally are godly before the Lord and before one another as we treat our spouse, as we raise our children, as we interact with others, if we don't win the war of holiness in our house, we have no shot of winning the war of holiness in the streets. But don't sit here and tell me there's nothing we can do about it. Yes, there is. It is high time for God's people to stand with the God of the people. We've got to stop being parents who are too embarrassed to have a conversation with our children because they're having some confusing identity crisis questions. We've got to stop saying, you know what, I can't talk to my grandchildren about that. I can't talk to my children about it because if, if, I, if I offend my children, then I'll lose my grandchildren. Friends, I'm not telling you stop loving your family. I'm just telling you stand with God with your family. Now some of you are thinking, wait, I thought this was a money sermon. I thought you said this is about being generous with your resources. I thought this was a money sermon. And now you've gone to, to meddling. This is a meddling sermon. Well, for those of you who are offended that I haven't got to money yet, just hold on. But the psalmist says, let's get first things first. If we're going to live a disciple-made a disciple life, if we're going to be a God-built disciple, we've got to have a right relationship with God. So hallelujah is on our life and our lips. And if, and if we're going to be a God-built disciple, we've got to be in right relationship with our family so that we raise children who are mighty in their generation, upright, blessed. I don't know about you, but I, I think we need some more mighty children, don't you? I think this generation, I think the next one coming after us, I think the one coming after them, I think every generation we need some more mighty children of God. And moms and dads, we've got to get them somebody to look up to. We've got to live in such a way that they say, hey, I want to be as holy as my old man. I want to be as holy as mom. Because I saw the gospel in their life, in our home. I saw it consistently. They weren't perfect. Nobody's perfect except Jesus Christ. But mom and dad really, really tried to show us the gospel. And so I want to live the gospel and give it to my kids and give it to my grandkids and give it to my great-grandkids and pass it down from one generation to the next. Don't ever say, we can't do anything about it. It's too far gone. God is able to do immeasurably more we can ever ask, think, or imagine. Never put my God in a box. Never tell him there's something he can't do because he can revive this culture and bring us back unto him. But we got to start winning the war of holiness in our house. So then you come to verse 3. It's the disciple in his relationship with his possessions. So the psalmist says that wealth and riches are in his house. 
Verse 5, he's generous and he lends freely. Verse 9, he scatters among the poor his gifts throughout the world. Under the old covenant, it was believed that if you had material wealth, that was a sure sign of God's blessing. If you had money, that meant that God was shining upon you. If you were blessed financially with materials and resources, then you were certainly favored by God. It's that line of thought that causes the friends of Job to come to the only conclusion they could come to. Job, you've done something wrong. Job was one of the richest men to have ever lived. And in one day, he lost everything. He lost his 500 yoke of oxen, his 500 donkeys, his 7,000 sheep, his 3,000 camels, all of his servants, his seven sons, and his three daughters. If you were the friends of Job living in that day and time, you would have had the same conclusion. Job, you must have done something wrong. You had everything, which is a sure sign of God's blessing. And in one day, God took it all away. What did you do? Now, as the reader of the story, we know that God was talking about Job behind Job's back. The adversary, the devil himself, gained an audience with the Lord and said, the only reason Job follows you and loves you is because of the gifts that you've given to him. You strip those away and he'll curse you. And the Lord said to the, said to the devil, I know my servant Job better than you know Job. You can take whatever you want from him, but don't take his life. And I promise you, he will still bless my name. In one day, the devil took everything away from Job that mattered to him. I do find it ironic, also comical, that the only thing left was Job's wife. What does that say about her? I mean, I can imagine the demons came up to the devil and they said, okay, we've carried out all your instructions. We've taken everything away from Job, but there's Mrs. Job. What do you want us to do? And the devil said, <laughs> leave her, just leave her, leave her. Because he'll be more miserable with her alive than even if she died. Leave her. Leave her. This will be awesome. This will be great. There are some husbands that really want to laugh, but you can't right now. The friends of Job, they said, Job, what did you do wrong? You must have done something. Because the sure sign of God's blessing is, is financial gifts. That idea, that mentality even made its way into the New Testament. So the disciples of Jesus are shocked in Matthew chapter 19. When Matthew uh, says, uh, when, when Jesus says in Matthew 19, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. The disciples thought to themselves, well, if the rich man won't get in, who will? Because riches are a sign of God's favor. And Jesus was teaching that God had never changed. But God is more concerned with your righteousness than your riches. Certainly there are righteously rich people and righteously poor people. And unrighteously rich people and unrighteously poor people. And God cares more about your righteousness than your riches. But how you spend your riches reveals your righteousness. Don't ever get that backwards. Don't think that your righteousness is equated with your riches. No. But how you handle 
your riches, that does reveal your righteousness. So let me ask you the question once again. How much generosity will suit your giving? How generous are you with your riches? With the riches and the wealth that God has placed in your house? Are you generous? Do you lend freely? Do you give away with no strings attached? Do you scatter your riches under the poor throughout the nations so they can receive your gifts? How do you respond to the riches that God has given unto you? This past year in 2022, you gave nearly $3 million through this church. To God be the glory. You gave in excess of $2.9 million. Now, you do realize that when you give through this church, you are scattering your gifts to the poor. Because whether you like it or not, 14 cents of every dollar that you give goes to missions. 10 cents goes through the cooperative program. As a church, we are part of the Shelby Baptist Association. We're happy to be part of the Alabama Baptist Convention and also the Southern Baptist Convention. And together as 50,000 cooperating Southern Baptist churches, we are part of that SBC umbrella. And when we give through the cooperative program, literally you are giving to help support missionary and missions that are local, that are in this country, that literally are scattered throughout the world. Because of your giving through this church, 10 cents of every dollar goes through the cooperative program. Two cents of every dollar goes to the Shelby Baptist Association. And then another two cents to make up a total of 14 cents of every dollar. The other two cents stays right here, and we do local mission work with it so that much of some of what we talked about on Mission Sunday is funded because of that 2% that is retained here. So you scatter your gifts to the poor when you give here at First Baptist Pelham. And also, this ministry that we have every Sunday, because of modern-day technology, literally it goes all over the globe. As you give to this ministry, as you give to this congregation, as you give through this church, the message of the gospel from this sacred spot is literally going all over the globe. To God be the glory. Now, you gave, we gave $2.9 million. We have... 1,816 resident members. 1,816 resident members make up 784 households. So together we have 784 households. A household could be an individual. It could be a couple. It could be a family of three, four, five, maybe even six. It could be a widow. It could be a widower. But we have 784 households. When we took a deeper dive into the the giving of these households, we discovered this, that in 2022, 80% of the total amount given, which would have been equivalent to $2.3 million, was given by 200 families. 363 additional families gave a grand total of more than $660,000. And 221 families collectively gave Zero. That's how we were demonstrated our generosity. So I ask you the question again. How much generosity will suit your giving? And it's at this point that all you who are waiting for the money portion of the sermon, aren't you excited right now? Because here it is and here it comes. 80% of our gifts were given by 25% of our families. 
the remaining portion of our giving was given by a little bit less than 50% of our families. So that about 26, 27% of our families gave absolutely nothing to the work of the Lord through this congregation. I'm not trying to get generosity from you. I am trying to place generosity in you. I'm not trying to get something out of you. By God's grace, I'm trying to get something in you. I I don't want generosity from you. I want generosity for you because I know that a person who's in right relationship with God, it, it impacts the relationship with their family and it also impacts the relationship that they have with their possessions. Now why? It's one thing to tell the what. It's another thing to tell the why. Why should we be generous? And the simple answer is this. Our generosity is linked to the Lord. Because God has been generous to us, we long to be generous to him. How generous has God been to you? Well, I can tell you this much. He spared not his own son, but he gave the crown jewel of heaven. He emptied out heaven's treasury to give us our salvation. Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on a criminal's cross, not because of any sin he had committed, but because of sins that you and I have committed. And Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute. He took our hell so we may enjoy his heaven. He died and, on the, and his body was placed in a grave. A stone was rolled in front of it. And on the third day, Jesus got up. The dead man began to breathe again. He secured our salvation because God has been so generous to us Then we want to be generous back to him. I got to tell you, God has been good to me. God has blessed me. He not only has given me salvation, but he's given me health. He's given me the ability to come and stand and preach. He's put a roof over my head and clothes on my back. He's given shoes on my feet. He's given me a car to drive. He's given me more than I could ever imagine. God has been good to me. I wish somebody could testify that God has been good to you. And if God has been so good to us, woe to us if we're not generous back to him. So we give not to meet a budget. We give not to keep the lights on. We give because God has given to us. Our generosity is linked to the Lord. So how much generosity will suit your giving? It's at this moment that I'm always reminded of the statement about C.S. Lewis. I've shared it with you before. But I share it with you often because it owns me every time I think about it. C.S. Lewis said, I don't know how much I'm supposed to give. I really, I have no idea how much to give. But this much I know. My generosity ought to pinch me a little bit. There ought to be some pleasurable things that I want to do and could do, but I'm kept from doing because my generosity to the Lord prohibits it. It's not that C.S. Lewis was saying he wanted to do some sinful thing. No, he wanted to do some good thing. He wanted to do some pleasurable thing, something that, that would have been acceptable in the sight of the Lord. But because of his generosity to God, he didn't have the financial resources to do whatever that pleasurable, right thing was that he could have done. So he said, my generosity, it it ought to to squeeze me a little bit. I ought to feel the pinch of my generosity. I know you feel the pinch of an inflated economy. I know you feel the pinch that everything at the grocery store is higher than it was this time a year ago. I know you feel that pinch, but I'm asking you this morning, do you feel the pinch of your generosity towards God? Do you give to God in faith? 
Do you give to God knowing that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? He can take care of you. You can't outgive God. And so you want to give to him because he has given so richly unto you. The Apostle Paul, uh, he lifted out verse 9 of our passage and he plopped it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. In the New Testament, there's no formula for generosity. Under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we hear the idea of tithing, giving the first 10%. Giving the first 10% being a representation that God's in charge of the other 90%, so he's got it all anyway. But according to the Old Covenant, you gave the first tithe, the 10%. In the New Testament, there is no equation. There is no formula. The only thing that's given, Paul gives in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says God loves a cheerful giver. That's it. That's the only only guardrail that's established. God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is the word hilarious. Do you want to take a stab at what English word we get from the Greek word hilarious? It's hilarious. The word means that God loves a hilarious giver. It's, it's, it's funny, really. It's crazy. It's silly. It puts a smile on God's face. puts a smile on your face. You don't give reluctantly. You don't give begrudgingly. You give with a smile on your face. It's so, it's crazy. It's, 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 it's uber good how great God is. And so you want to give back to him. And so you give it to him. And, and you, you've got a smile on your face. And, and God has a smile on his face because God loves a cheerful giver. Once again, how much generosity will suit your giving? The psalmist says that a disciple that's built by the Lord, he has a right relationship with God. He has a right relationship with his family. He has a right relationship with his possessions, fourth and finally. He has a right relationship with the world. Quickly, you look at verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. It will simply say that he is never shaken. The God-built disciple is never shaken. It's not that he never suffers. It's not that uh, he never experiences some heartache. It's not that he never has some bad days or bad moments. But there's nothing in this world that will shake him. Why? Because his life is in the hands of the Lord. He simply says hallelujah all the time. So he's never shaken. It's not that he never watches the news. He watches the news. But the news doesn't shake him. It's not that he doesn't read what comes through his uh, iPhone. He reads it, but it just doesn't shake him. It's not that he doesn't get the morning paper. He reads the morning paper. But it doesn't shake him because God is the one who's in control of all things. He has the world in his hand. So the God-built disciple, he's never shaken by the world. This is one who has no fear of bad news. Verse 7. It's not that he never gets bad news. He doesn't have a fear of bad news. It doesn't scare him because God is in charge. In verse 8, his heart is secure. His heart doesn't melt. He, He doesn't. He doesn't fall headlong into the ravine of depression. He says, no, no, listen, I know that God is able to do immeasurably more. I know that God's got this. He's got my back. He's got this world. So my heart doesn't melt. I don't don't waste away in discouragement. I know that God's got this. You get to verse 10. It's the first time that the wicked 
is mentioned. And the wicked are vexed. They're gnashing their teeth. They waste away. If you compare verse 10 of Psalm 112 to verse 10 of Psalm 111, it's polar opposite. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You get to verse 10 of Psalm 112, that's not one who fears the Lord. That's the opposite of one who fears the Lord. He's wicked. She's wicked. They're wicked. They are vexed, they're worried, they're perplexed, they gnash their teeth, and they waste away. But not so the righteous. They endure forever. So you come to this psalm, and I'm convinced that the psalmist is describing a God-built disciple. Because a God-built disciple is in right relationship with God and family and possessions and the world. I think what the psalmist is doing, he is looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Because I'll let you know a little secret. You know what the secret is to a God-built disciple? God places Jesus in us. And the Jesus who is in us sticks out of us. It is the Apostle Peter who says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that in Jesus, God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus, we have everything that we need. In Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. God did not spare us any resources. He gave us everything that we need. When God builds a disciple, he puts Jesus inside of us. And if Jesus is inside of us, then Jesus will stick out of us because Jesus shows us how to have a right relationship with God. Jesus shows us how to have a right relationship with family, the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our children. Jesus shows us how to have a right relationship with possessions so they don't possess us. Jesus shows us how to interact appropriately with this wicked world. If we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. A God-built disciple has Jesus inside of him and Jesus sticks out of him. So Jesus is my hope and Jesus is my peace and Jesus is my bottom line and Jesus is my hallelujah and Jesus is my glory and Jesus is my splendor and Jesus is the smile on my face and Jesus is the skip in my step and Jesus is the one that helps me to dance and Jesus is the one that helps me to sing and Jesus is the one that helps me to preach and Jesus is the one that gets me up in the morning it's all about Jesus because a God-built disciple has Jesus inside of him and Jesus sticks out So this morning, let me ask you, is Jesus inside of you? If he's not, he can be. In this moment, the most glorious transaction can take place where God will build out of you a disciple for him. And the first thing that he does and the ultimate thing he does, he puts Jesus in you. And if you're here today, you never accepted Jesus. Today can be the day of your salvation. But I know a lot of you. Not all of you, but I know a lot of you. And I know that many of you, you're a disciple of the Lord. But for some reason, he ain't sticking out, is he? He's not sticking out as much as he should in your relationship with God and family and possessions in the world. And for whatever reason, you've tucked him away. You've told him certain places where he can go and can't go. Oh, friend, if you are in Christ, let Jesus stick out of you. Let him have control of every relationship in your life. So maybe you're here and you are a believer, but you just need to come and pray and say, God, please take over this relationship or that relationship. Maybe 
something's out of whack in your relationship with God. Or maybe there's something off in your relationship with family. Maybe you become stingy with your possessions and your resources. Or, or maybe you're too fearful of the world. And the world causes you to melt in your heart today, friend. Come and lay yourself at the altar of God. And let him help you in your time of need. If you're here today and you need to join this church, now's the time to do it. Whatever it is God is urging you to do, won't you come? Let the altar be full. Let us pray. Let us reach out to the Lord. And may God build in us a disciple he wants us to be. He will put Jesus in us and Jesus will stick out of us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. We pray that you're honored and glorified. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.